Exodus chapter 17, what a story it has been so far. The people of God have been rescued, rescued from the hands of the superpower Egypt. They were slaves, they were being murdered, they were being kept under generation by generation in this horrible life of slavery, which was no life at all. And we find now that God has rescued them miraculously. He has brought them into the wilderness that he might put them through a little bit of testing, and then give them his law and consecrate them as his people. This is sort of two sections of Exodus. One is taking the Israelites out of Egypt, and from 19 onwards, it will be taking the Egypt out of the Israelites. We're going to receive the law starting next week. We're going to see God consecrate a covenant between himself and his people through Moses, the mediator. But today, we see... We see what is for me a little bit of an oasis. Week by week, for the last month or so, we've been seeing the grumbling, faithless, ungrateful, infantile immaturity of the Israelites who have been so graciously saved. There's this set-apart group of people on earth and grumbling at God, angry that he puts them through hardships and, 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 and complaining against his leaders and his provisions. But at every moment... God, even sometimes he's, he's giving them strong rebukes, but at every moment he's been gracious and compassionate and he's been leading them like a father leads his complaining child on a hot day. He's been the gracious God. But today, what we see is two instances, one with the defeat of the Amalekites and one with the conversion of Moses' father and Lord Jethro. We see these two faith filled, good news, positive stories. So it's a, it's a good day to take a break from the grumbling of the Israelites. Verse 8 in chapter 17. Verse 8 in chapter 17, and we'll go through to verse 12 of chapter 18. Hear now the word of the one true living God. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men, and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands." One on one side and one on the other side. So his hands were, steadily, uh, were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Write this memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under the sun. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Chapter 18. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zephora, Moses' wife, and he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land, and those phrases sound alike. And the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, The God of my father was my help. 
uh, and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Verse 5, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, in case you didn't know by this point that it's his father-in-law for the third time, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And he sent for him, and he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that Yahweh had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. All the hardship that they had come upon, uh, that had come upon them in the way and how Yahweh had delivered them. Now Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be Yahweh, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because this, they dealt with him in arrogance. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. May God bless the preaching, the explaining, the understanding and applying of his most precious word in our midst this morning. Today we, we meet with a fight scene. These are some of my, I thought this was a, maybe a teenage uh, phase I was going through, but no, I, I love the fight scenes in the Bible. I love when God, through his people, raises them up to defeat his enemies. And we see this, the Amalekites come up against the Israelites. Uh, Amalek was a grandson of Esau. Now, if you know your Bible, Esau was the twin brother of Israel. Twin brothers are always best friends, aren't they? Twin brothers never, never fight, and the, the descendants of brothers would never turn against each other, would they? Now, the first brothers in the Bible are Cain and Abel, and if you know your Bible, that didn't end well. The Bible shows to us the, the, the reality of family struggles, and in this, we know that Jacob and Esau had turned against each other for a portion of their life, and so also did their descendants, Amalek, or the Amalekites, um, Amalek here is used as the, as the nation. They were nomadic. They, they were sort of called the first among the nations. They were some of the first organized societies in, in that sort of area where they, were, where, they, where they lived. And they were nomads, which meant they traveled. They didn't have a city. They got their wealth not by agriculture and, and farming and that sort of thing. They got their wealth by plundering. They were, they were the sand Vikings of the ancient world, we could say. And so Amalek, or the Amalekites, they see Israel uh, are gathered in the wilderness struggling, a huge multitude. And we hear in Deuteronomy, in, a, in another uh, parallel account, that in fact what he did was he started to send uh, a, 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 a cam, a camel warriors. That was one of the cool things about the Amalekites. They had domesticated camels so that they could look like a wild herd running through the wilderness as they hung on the side. And at the last moments they would spring upon their enemies and slaughter them. Pretty cool. Anyway... 
not when it's against Israel. Here's what they started to pick off Deuteronomy says the weakest and the slowest of the group at the back of the pack. This is cowardly. This is not send your messengers, declare war, and invite them to battle tomorrow. This is start killing the elderly, start killing the children, start killing the newborns. This is an act of terrorism against the covenant people of God. Now, if we remember back to Egypt, does God take lightly the destruction of his people? Not at all. The Amalekites' cowardly terrorist attack against the Israelites was noted, and, and probably they were threatened to surrender. Surrender this, this time tomorrow, or we'll kill the lot of you. That may have been the, the threat of the warrior tribe of the Amalekites, because it then says that Moses and Joshua had a day to prepare. Well, they weren't, they weren't gentlemen about it, these Amalekites. I don't think they, they got thirsty, went home, and came back the next day. I think that they, 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 they forced or they threatened and demanded surrender from the Israelites. And we see here in verse uh, uh, 9, Moses said to Joshua. That is to say that it seemed, seems from this early point that uh, uh, Joshua already was Moses' right-hand man. Uh, we're not told it specifically before this, but at this point, a crisis comes up, and, and we're not told that Moses talks to God, though we can assume that he did. I think we can safely assume that he would have received these instructions from God. But Moses simply turns to Joshua and says, go choose for us men who can fight. Now, you've got a million plus Jews and, and, and ex-Egyptians in this multitude, but Many of them were former slaves. Many of them were not trained fighters. In fact, we could say probably none of them were. The, the swords that they would have had were those that they plundered from the Egyptians, probably forged in the wilderness as well. In other words, they didn't have this huge armory and, uh, 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 for, the, for the infantry of Israel. And jo Joshua, therefore, had to pick some who could fight. It would have been a pretty, uh, pretty untrained army, though, though scholars believe that Joshua would have been the military trainer already at this point, and he would have been training the men in some measure as they traveled throughout the wilderness. He's then called, go get some guys who can fight. Let's go and meet Amalek out on the field tomorrow. So as Amalek looked on the people of Israel, she seemed defenseless, but she was not. Not because they had Joshua, not because they had a few trained men and some blades, but because they had their covenant God, Yahweh, with them in the wilderness. <laughs> so far, all of the enemies that Israel has, has fought uh, since leaving Egypt have been internal. The internal enemy of faithlessness. The internal enemy of ungratefulness. We will see the internal enemy of idolatry come up before long. But at this juncture, at this point, we see an external enemy come against the people of God. Now, how did they fare the last time there was an external enemy? The, the Egyptian army that surrounded them when they were waiting by the seaside. How did that go for them? Did they, did they respond positively and faithfully? Anybody care to answer? No, no. Did they respond with faithlessness and fear? Yeah, you bet. They absolutely did. This is what Moses said to them back in Exodus chapter 14 when they saw the Egyptian army coming after them. He had to tell them, fear not. Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. That was the command then. That's not the command now. Today, in fact, Moses calls on Joshua to go and tell the people, we've seen what God does at every juncture we need help, but today we are called to fight. 
And what is amazing is that in this story, we don't see any account of people grumbling and saying, oh, great, the, 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 the hunger didn't kill us, the thirst didn't kill us, so you've got the Amalekites to come and kill I wish we had stayed in Egypt. No, we don't see that. Today, I don't know why, maybe they were just bloodthirsty and wanted to get their hands on some Amalekite blood. I don't know. This was going to be a great stress relief for many of the men who were stuck in their tents with their families all day. I, I'm not sure, but they were, I'm, hands up, I am going to war. I would love to do this. They were keen. They were filled with faith. They relied on God in whatever he called them to do in this juncture. He did not say, call them to an interfaith dialogue, Joshua. Meet them out, all get seats around the table and just see what's motivating their hearts as to why they're killing our women and children. We would hate to be seen as, as those who are misrepresenting Yahweh. Uh, we want to extend the hand of grace and we want to uh, have this interfaith respectful dialogue. Remember, Moses had on the back of his camel the coexist bumper sticker. All right? No, this is, this is when the people of God are at their best, when they are knowing the mission of God Engaged by faith in that mission and fighting, filled with faith, strong and fighting for the Lord's purposes. Bold in the face of enemies, doing whatever God calls them to do, fighting for their faith, fighting for their family, fighting for the future, fighting for the one true God. In the Old Testament, and even now as scholars and theologians look back, this becomes what is known as holy war. Now, holy war is not just a war that as long as the nation says, this is for God, they can bomb as many hospitals and orphanages as they want. That's not holy war. There is room in the, in, in the New Testament world, uh, uh, after the, the age of Jesus Christ coming, even though there are not such things as, uh, as in the church is not a nation, there is still another uh, uh, whole chapter of ethics we could go into about legitimate reasons to conduct warfare that is honoring to God, whatever. But today what we're talking about is Old Testament holy war. And there was pretty strict requirements for something to be considered this holy war. Let's just get over the facts all together, take a big deep breath of fresh air and just be reminded by what the Bible tells us. God is God. Everyone deserves to die. Everyone deserves to die because we're sinners against the holy God. So if God sent a, an army of angels down into the world this day when Amalek, uh, uh, fought, uh, Amalek fought against the Israelites and killed everyone in the world, no one would be able to, to bat an eyelid and say, that wasn't fair, God, we deserve to live. No, no, we learned back in the, in the story when God commanded the Israelites to consecrate and redeem their firstborn children with a sacrifice, in that was a reminder, we all deserve to die, we live by grace Every day is a gift from God. In the Old Testament, because God's purposes surrounded a nation and were based on a promised land, out of which from that genetic race in that promised land would come the Messiah that would then bring forth all the finalized purposes of God. Therefore, in this old covenant system between Abraham and Jesus, there was therefore the purposes of God tied to a people and a land. Therefore, war for that land and war against the enemies of those people was a holy war. But there's even more. 
in the Old Testament, there's a few conditions for it to be considered holy war. The, the Israelites weren't allowed to just leave their promised land and go and kill some pagans and come on back because it's, it, it's plundering season. They weren't like that. It, it was, in fact, there was other requirements of things like uh, all the men who fought in holy wars had to be completely and perfectly willing. They were not allowed to be conscripted at all. That would, uh, that would show that we are not having faith in God for this holy war. We're fighting for God, but he's not fighting for us. So we need every man we can get. No, there's these requirements in Deuteronomy chapter 20. And it's basically, the, the be all and end all of it is, anybody that doesn't want to do this, walk on home. No hate. He's like, if anybody has a, has a field you haven't plowed, you can go home. If anybody has a, has a wife that is about to uh, give birth, go on home. If anybody has a dish that is yet to be washed, Take the day. If anybody has a show you want to watch, just get out of here. It's all good. The, the emphasis was, this is ultimately God fighting. This is not ultimately racial or genetic or even nationally motivated war. This is God defending his people against the devil and his hordes who are fighting against God's purposes by fighting against his people. So, this is holy war, and we thank God that he wrote it down in the scripture. So, Her, that's a funny name for a dude, Mr. Her, uh, uh, Sir Gentleman Her, and Josh, uh, sorry, and Moses and Aaron went up onto the hill and stood above the, the fighting grounds, and Joshua and the army came out onto the fighting grounds against Amalek. And what we're told here is a symbol of the power of mediation. The staff that Moses is holding, right? This is battle day. This is next day. The battle's raging. Up on the hill, the staff that Moses is holding is more than just a miracle magic wand. It's a symbol of the presence of God with his people. It's the, 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 the staff through which God did the miracles in Egypt. It's the staff which struck the rock and got the miracle water. It's the staff that is the presence of God among the people. And so as Moses holds it up, he shows them, I am mediating to us the very presence of God through the staff. And, and with his exalted hands, with his uplifted hands, what he was showing is we depend on the presence of God. This was his, his intercession. We're not told necessarily that he's praying. But I think his act and his whole posture is a form of prayer. In the sense that he's above the people and he's representing the people to God. And he's holding up the staff saying, we rely on you, God. We need your help. You've commanded this. We're obeying you. So that as soon as the staff comes down, he goes, oh, that, that old shoulder. You know, he's like 80 at this point. Let's give the guy a break. He's got an old bad shoulder and his tennis elbows, you know, getting sore. And he, he puts it down. Now, he is reliant on God in theory. And that's most of the church today. Prayer is very important, and we can't do anything without God, and we must be praying people, and he, he is the source of all good, true fruit. Souls won't be saved. Souls won't be sanctified. Marriages won't be healed. The world won't be one for Christ if we don't rely on God, and we're like Moses standing up there leaning on his staff, saying it's really important to depend on God. He is very, very important, but when the church gathers to pray, when there are intercessors 
in the church, those people who are committed to a warfare and a ministry of praying and petitioning, when the church actually prioritizes and emphasizes an attendance to the prayer meetings and a gathering for prayer in the homes and a, and a time for prayer whenever we gather, when the church actually does that, that is when we are truly like Moses standing with our arms raised. It's not just theory. We're not just theoreticians about the fact that we rely on God. We know it, we feel it, and though it may make our arms and our body ache, we go to prayer regularly and desperately. Do you feel the desperation? Moses was standing there looking over his people, and sure, he had sore arms, but when he put down his hands, his brothers, his sisters, his, his, his nephews and cousins were being slaughtered. They lost their heads. They were, they were run through with a javelin. They were thrown into the sand to bleed to death. They were taken off by a chariot. And so what did he, he lifted his hands up again. And, 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 and we may be those who, in prayer, it's, it's struggling, it's, it's difficult, but if our eyes were open to the cost of prayerlessness, if our eyes could see the, the cost in our community, in our families, with our children, with our lost loved ones, if we could see right in front of us the cost of prayerlessness, we would do whatever is necessary. And that's what we see in, in Moses' actions, see, and, and with Aaron and with her. They, they don't say, look, it's really difficult, it's important, but it's really difficult to be interceding at the moment. Take a break. They say, well, what is the, what can we do? We will do whatever we can do to make sure we have constant mediated intercession. So what do they do? They sit Moses down on a rock. They get him to hold his arms up around the, the staff. And they each stand there, bracing one elbow each, and stand there a full day. Now, maybe they got tired. We're not told in the text. Maybe we had a little bit of a conga line going on here where everybody's sort of human pyramiding around Moses and Aaron and her so that they, so they're able to... We don't know. But we know that the emphasis, the absolute priority at this moment, was not just that they know they depended on God, but that they actually did the thing that God demanded his people do to depend on God. In this moment, it was the intercession of holding the staff for the church of God, in the battle of God. We do not wage war or rage against flesh and blood and nations and armies. We wage war against those who have from the beginning of the world, sought to destroy the purposes of God, the, the, the fallen angels, the demons, the principalities and powers, the godless ideologies, false religions and false gods. They are those that now attack the church. Will we be intercessors? Will we know much and speak much about dependence or will we actually depend? Maybe it's hard to leave home in old age. You can pray. Maybe it's hard to leave bed in sickness. You can pray. Maybe it's hard to do a whole lot because you haven't been trained in much ministry. You can pray. Anybody can pray. We can all pray. We can be together at the prayer meetings. We can intercede to the Lord on behalf of, of, of those who need his salvation. The church needs the intercessors. And what happens? In verse 13, Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. He overwhelmed them. They, they killed them all, in other words, for the, for the G-rated VeggieTales Christians out here. They slaughtered them. They, they painted the sand red with their blood and said, Hallelujah, praise the Lord, and they chinked their glasses afterwards. It was a good day for the people of God, and progressive Christianity just can't deal with this text. And you know who else was happy about it? God. 
he made a post-battle pact. And he said, this was so good. I'm going to do more of this. I'm going to do this until there's no more Amalekites. That's the God we serve. Why? Because, because he has genetic favorites. Because there's something about Abraham and his, his descendants. Or they, they got that look. It's the nose. It's the, I don't know, it's their hair. You know, it's the way they say, they say, uh, uh, it's, oh, I like them. Everybody else, I'll, I'll just wipe them out when I feel like, no. No, because God is seeking and saving a lost people in the world through his purposes that started with the Israelites and will culminate in Jesus. And the devil and his hordes are attacking that purpose. And when people side with demons, God fights people like he fights demons. We saw this in Egypt with the plagues. God was killing Egyptians. Why? Because they had sworn allegiance to false gods and demonic principalities. They'd waved the flag. They had whole months dedicated to sins and to demons. They had festivals and marches and parades going through town to demon gods. And so God attacked those people with, in very, very physical ways, which were ultimately spiritual battles. So God overwhelmed Amalek through the fighting of Joshua and they were put to the death. And then God makes this pact. He says, write this down in, in what became the first draft of the book of Exodus. Write this down as a memorial in a book and then recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And so Moses, Moses builds an altar and he, and, he, and he prophesies God's prophecy and says, every generation that Amalek lives Every generation that this nation propagates, God will be at war with them. And we see that uh, uh, play out into the future of the Old Testament. <clears throat> but here, Moses builds an altar. An altar was a, usually a rock sort of formation. You're not supposed to cut it with hands. You just sort of put natural rocks because that was God's sort of doing. That was the way they saw that. They put rocks as God had built them into a pile with a flat top. And there they would make sacrifices in worship to God. And what these became were what well, we might call them Ebenezer's. Christians have called them Ebenezer's throughout history. That is the hitherto has the Lord helped us, says the KJV. Or, or, or in other translations, less cool translations, it's, it's up until this time, the Lord has been our help, and so we make rock piles of remembrance so that future generations, as they walk past, say, what's this structure? Oh, what's the, what's the plaque say? Say, this was a reminder of how God defeated Amalek through his soldiers. Though they were outnumbered, though they were, though they were weak in the wilderness, God did this. Moses built an altar, he made sacrifices upon it, and he named the altar, didn't he? He named the altar. He says here in verse uh, 16, uh, sorry, verse 15, he named it, the Lord is my banner, saying a hand upon the throne of Yahweh. He says, the reason that Amalek was defeated, the reason that the people of God overwhelmed them, the reason that God's purposes prevailed is not just because God is more powerful, but because the people of God had a hand upon his throne. Because the people of God, symbolized by Moses, Aaron, and Hur, because we interceded with my hand upon the staff, which is to symbolize a hand upon God's throne, because we did that, we accessed God's power and therefore saw victory. That's another picture for the church. We are not just going to overcome in the spiritual warfare, in the Great Commission, and the winning of souls, the planning of churches. We're not just going to see that done 
by having a more powerful God. It's not enough. It's not enough. God has interwoven his power and purposes to the act of people's prayer. A hand upon the throne of God, Moses sees as the reason there was victory today. But he calls it something else. And this is something more ultimate. He calls this altar, the Lord is my banner. In Old Testament sort of times and in ancient worlds, in fact, up, up until even common day, infantry and people on the, on the ground in warfare would have in their legions and in their armies the, the prized sort of a, a, a covetous spot of being the flag bearer. Maybe two people carrying large, large flags. The Romans did this with their golden eagles upon the standards. Uh, whatever it may be, armies do this to show we are here. This is who we are. And as long as this flag is waving, the battle is not lost. Well, it would have been a, a great act in warfare to take down the flag bearer because then the people's flag falls to the ground. Then the people will look around and they don't see their banner are my other people out here? Are my brothers still fighting? Is my king still alive? Are we still in this fight or have we lost? What Moses says is that the Lord is my banner. In the middle of fighting, the people of God, the Israelites, though, though it was raging hot, though they were getting stabbed and bleeding and, and hurt in all kinds of ways, they could look to the hill from where their help came and say, there is Moses touching the throne of God. There is God in our midst as symbolized in the staff. And heck, there's the, the, the pillar of cloud and smoke. God is my banner. As long as he's there, we are in this fight. And so it is for the people of God. That, that we don't have a mediator that is as good as Moses. We don't have a mediator in the person of Jesus Christ who at any point says, gee, praying and interceding for this old church thing is a lot of work. I wish I could take a rest. No, we don't have a, we don't have a mediator like Moses who is merely flesh and blood. We have a mediator who is flesh and blood, amen? We have a mediator in Jesus who is truly man, yet truly God. Who has, who has a human form that was being able to be given as a sacrifice for us on the altar of God, and yet he is truly God so that he could make such a divine sacrifice to pay for us, but also to ever live and without breaking a sweat, pray for his people every single day. Jesus, the Lord, is my banner. See your banner? Is he the banner of this church? Is he the banner of Christianity that as we look around us and there's political enemies and the, the leftward swing of the culture and, and perversion and there's all kinds of ideologies that are, that are, that are, are whelping up and, and taking our children and infecting all sorts of liberal churches and, and as you are tempted to commit the Israelite pattern of losing faith, I dare you, I command you, look to heaven, see Jesus on the throne, the Lord, the King, the reigning sovereign, and know he is our banner. As long as he is waving, as long as he is high and lifted up, the church cannot lose. He is our banner. He waves. He stands there. He is in heaven, and he is at every moment assuring us the church will see victory as long as we depend on God and preach his word. The Lord is our banner. 
Jesus, we are told in Hebrews chapter 7, Jesus does not grow tired of praying. For, Jesus at no point has to say, Moses, you did a great, great, great job there against Amalek. Can you come up here and help me pray for the people? Sorry, Catholics. Nor does he ask his mother and say, hey, Mary, can you come and pray for the people? There sure is a lot of them. They're all praying in Italian. That's your sort of thing. You know, the, we've got the Latin and we, we you know, oh, St. Joseph, can you come and pray also? He doesn't need the help of saints. He doesn't need the help even of the angels. He does not ask for other people's help. It is God himself in the person of Jesus Christ who prays for us. Does he need help in his weakness? No, we need help in our weakness. And so he sends his spirit. Not only is he, he, is he sufficient enough for his own prayers, his own intercession on our behalf, he also sends his strength, the Holy Spirit, to us to help us pray to him, a hand upon the throne of God. The Lord is our banner and he does not grow tired. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25. He is able to save to the uttermost Those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercessions for them. Is your marriage on the rocks? Do you feel that another day will be all you can do and you are tempted to end it all? Is your job so so, so straining of your soul that it feels at this moment it's either obey God or keep doing this job? I'm going to kill somebody. I'm going to give up. I'm going to quit. Coming to church is just this strain on the soul and you're being tempted to the world. Is, Is your sin at fever pitch and you feel that the battle within is raging and surely you will lose. You're, you're not able to stand against the strength and the heat of this sin. Are you, are you waiting for something in, for God to give? Maybe it's marriage. Maybe it's ministry. Maybe it's the salvation of a, of a loved one. Whatever it may be, are you at your end and you feel that you're about to snap? Look to heaven. The Lord is our banner. As long as he sits there, as long as he reigns, we have an interceder. We have a mediator, and he will see victory according to God's will. Or maybe you're a, you're a lost person. You're a non-Christian, and you're in the, in the condemnation of your sin, and you know you're going to hell. You know you're more aligned with the Amalekites right now against God than you are like Moses under God's lordship. And you ask the question, is it possible even for the vilest, even for the guilty like me, who has put it off for so long, who has, who has sinned so often, is it even possible that I would be saved? And I say to you again, has God made the ultimate sacrifice in Jesus Christ for sinners? Yes. Did he put that sacrifice, having been raised from the dead, on display for everybody above all rule and reign on the throne of God in heaven? Yes, he has, as long as Jesus is Lord, which will never change. You have a mediator that can make you right with God. He ever lives to make intercession for those who draw near to God through him. That is the power of our mediator. Look at the next amazing thing that happens in chapter 18. We won't read all of it, but I'll recap. Jethro is the father-in-law of Moses, in case you didn't pick it up. And, and, and at some point, Moses had sent his wife back to his father-in-law. Some scholars think this was divorce. There's no textual reason to think that. But maybe it was like in war times when Moses was going back into Egypt in the danger of the plagues and whatnot. He sent his wife home. I think rather it would have been that she was with him the whole time. 
He had faith that God would protect the people of God, and he showed that by keeping his own wife and kids with him. He goes, I think it's when, when they go back into the wilderness of sin, uh, back into the wilderness, which is, which is sort of neighboring country to Midian, where she was from, he likely sent her away to go back to the father-in-law to come and meet with him because they had organized to do so back in chapter 4. That seems to be the case at the moment. So Jethro comes and he sa- sends out a messenger, says, let them know that I'm coming with his wife and his children. He sent out a... what? other than just being the cultural thing to do of the day, why do you think on the, on the back of this bloody warfare against the pagans, why do you think Jethro would have been so careful to send out a messenger party, make sure we're all on good terms, and come and approach Moses? Because he's a high priest of a pagan religion. And so he comes and and he's met, and we see all of the appropriate regalia and, and cultural acts. We see Moses and him greet each other, ask of their welfare. They give the, the cultural kisses on the cheek, and they bow down to each other. And then they go and share time together in fellowship, sitting down in their tent and discussing. Look at what we're told in verse 8. And then Moses told his father-in-law all that Yahweh had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. We know, don't we? We know that family, biological nuclear family, is a gift from God that avails unique opportunities for evangelism. There are people, think of it this way, don't think some of my family are unsaved, or some of my family are Christian, or I have a Christian family, rather think this, God has his chosen children who he puts on earth for a portion of time as your child or as your brother or as your wife or as your sister or as your husband. He puts them on earth for a portion of time in relationship to you that you might be able to do them eternal good. God's given you children, not because they're ultimately yours and and he'll take them to himself one day, but because they're ultimately his and he stewards them to you for a time, how will you treat them? What good will you do for them? Will they be in eternal heaven because of your labor, because of your prayer, hand upon the throne of God? And here we see other relationships, like father-in-law, the the lost pagan high priest of Midian, demon worshiper, Jethro. And he's been given this, this unique relationship to Moses for doing Jethro eternal good. And Moses knew that. And so when they met, (coughs) he aimed unabashedly, very clearly, he tried to convert his his family member. I I need to say this. I'm going to do a a service and a a favor to uh, the, the regulars here. And I'm going to talk to the unbelievers. If you're an unbelieving family member, it is good. It is a sign of love. It is them seeking your eternal good that your family members try and convert you. I don't mean shoving down your throat. I don't mean reciting the Ten Commandments every night before before you go to bed so you you somehow become a Christian overnight. I don't mean spraying you with holy oil, seeing that done. Not a thing. Just not not a thing at all. Don't do that. I've seen it all, but, but rather their job is to try and convert you. Or in other words, to present before you all the goodness of God in Jesus Christ and say to you, don't you want this? Because you need it. 
and you might not understand it fully, and you might not agree with me, but you need it. You're a sinner. I love you. I'm a sinner. God has put grace out for us in Jesus Christ. And, And he will ask me one day, what did I do with my family relationships? Did I use them for the gospel? Or did I, did I shy away? There is unique opportunities in the family relationship. They know you so well. You know them so well. You can pray for them. You have meals together. And that's what we see Moses do. They went in and had a meal. And Moses shared with him the good news. The, the Old Testament gospel. That is to say that God is at work to redeem a people. And at the moment, what he's done is redeem us out of Egypt. I love this though. Look at what else he says at the end of verse 8. Uh, mid, midway through verse 8. And he told them all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. Oh, do you see that he didn't shy away from the fact that they had sinned horribly against God, yet God was gracious? Don't don't shy away from the hard parts of Christianity as you evangelize your loved ones. Don't pretend that you've uh, you've been some shining example of an angel and any fault your brother or sister or child or wife or mother sees in you, oh, that's their blindness. No, confess, they know you. They know you. They've seen your sins. Be open about that. But show, you know me. You know my sins. And God has still been pleased to forgive me. He can forgive you. He told them how, uh, how the Lord had delivered them. And look, we see here in verse 9, a full and complete and true conversion of Jethro to the true religion, if we can say that, or at least to faith in the one true God. Moses shared with him all that God had done, and Jethro becomes uh, uh, soft of heart, resting on God, and believing in him. Look at what verse 9 says. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, for he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Verse 10. Jethro said, blessed be the Lord. He started praising and worshiping God who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now, now hear what constitutes his faith confession. Right? This is him giving his testimony. Now I know that Yahweh is greater than all gods because in this affair, they dealt arrogantly with the people. That's a hard last half of the sentence to translate, but it seems like he is speaking of the demon gods of the false gods, and he's saying, now I know. All my questions have been answered. My, 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 my lack of trust in my own God, my, my questions and my, my pained conscience as I worship this false god, now I understand. All of the other gods act arrogantly against the people. They lie to the people. They manipulate the people. They lead them to do human sacrificing and, and, and all kinds of disgusting acts. But God is above those gods. There is one God. There's a true God. And look, here's what, here's what Jethro is seeing. There is a God who leads his people sovereignly, not depending on them. And he leads them to a blessed assurance of salvation. He's not like the other gods who, who lead us in this self-destructive mess of, of pagan religion of self-help religion, of, of the kind of things we see in the world today. The true God doesn't depend on us, but leads us to blessed gifts of salvation. Jethro acknowledges that. So, in his conversion, we see it rejo- he rejoiced in God, verse 9. He blessed God, verse 10. He confessed Yahweh as the only God, verse 11. Uh, and, and, and then he sacrificed to him. Look at verse 12. He brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. Now, this is a big turnaround 
from what we saw back in Exodus chapter 4, right? In Exodus chapter 4, Moses told his father-in-law, I saw a burning bush out in the desert. Uh, He spoke to me. He told me to go back and basically shove my finger in the eye of the great superpower called Egypt. You've probably heard of them. And I'm going to walk out with the entire economical basis of that whole nation. And I'll meet you back here at this mountain. And Jethro said, do you mind if my daughter stays with me while you try this? There's a big difference between your son-in-law saying that a burning tree spoke to him in the wilderness. The big difference between that and then marching back onto your doorstep with a million people behind him, eating miracle bread out of their lunchboxes, with a massive smoke tower that's speaking to them, having destroyed the superpower of the nation. That, that's a big difference. And now Jethro, Jethro's convinced. If there's, ever, if there's ever an example of the old adage of, of son-in-laws trying to impress and outdo their father-in-laws, Moses gets this. He, just, he brings a superpower into a headlock and brings it back onto the front door of Jethro. And, and now he's impressed, right? Father-in-laws are pretty hard to impress, amen? Yep, and they're doing their right job. Now Jethro's impressed. He's convinced and he sees there is only one true God. He confesses him as such. He makes a sacrifice to that God as the only God. So he is in this moment rejecting, rejecting his religion that he is a priest of and that he's going to go back to to try and convert people very soon at the end of chapter 18. And it says in verse 12, And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father and Lord before God. That is that they shared in a covenantal meal. This was not just, well, you've been hungry, Moses preached for a long time, have a snack. This was a fellowship covenantal meal where the elders who represented the nation, Moses who represented God, and they even have an awareness that God was in their presence. In other words, Jethro hears the gospel, he gives his testimony, he gets baptized, and he takes communion. That's what happened in this scene. Here he is taking communion, if you will, with the Israelites, having fully given himself to God in true faith. Now, without all of the other laws given, all of the other laws that were going to come in Exodus chapter 20 and beyond, this is, don't don't look at this and think, well, he's not a true Israelite because he leaves or he goes back to Midian. No, no, no. He is a true faithful worshiper of God. This is as much as they knew to do for God in this time, and he does it all, and he shows forth his genuine faith. Now, now look at the, the glorious contrast between Amalek and Jethro. Amalek went out to meet Moses. So did Jethro. Amalek was a worshiper of false demon gods. So was Jethro. Amalek attacked God's people by killing the Israelites. Jethro welcomed and listened to the Israelites or his son Moses. The Amalekites were judged by God's glorious power. Jethro was saved by God's glorious power. And this is all in perfect fulfillment of chapter 9 verse 16, where this confusing to us modern Christians uncomfortable dynamic was prophesied. When God said, I'm going to raise up Pharaoh and harden his heart so that his fall is felt across the whole planet of earth and my name is glorified in his defeat. 
And we say, I'm not sure I'm comfortable with God opposing humans and bringing them down so that his glory goes out to other humans. And we say, it's the doctrine of election. God chooses who he is. We choose how we respond. Does he choose whether or not we'll respond? Oh, in eternity past, for sure. Does that bother you right now? No. The choice is, will you hear and believe or hear and reject? Now, now, Exodus 9.16 said, For this purpose, Pharaoh, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God was achieving that purpose. Jethro had heard. He would have been, before Moses sent word to him, Jethro was sitting there. He was asking the messengers from Egypt, the, the couriers from Egypt, the, 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 the FedEx guys from Egypt, the, the guys who came to He was asking travelers, have you, have you heard of a man named Moses? And any chance you've heard of a people called Hebrews? Or he said he was going to be in Egypt at this point of time. Have you heard of them? And the stories he would have heard of the people fleeing from, from Egypt. Yeah, there was three plagues. I left because they were so scary and the Nile turned to blood. Moses has power and etc. etc. And then later on, more people would come. No, there was six plagues. No, there was ten plagues. In fact, have you heard the people defeated the Amalekites, those hardened Vikings in the sand? And, and Jethro's hearing these stories and he's... I mean, we know how fishermen tell their stories and how, and how returned soldiers will extend their, their stories and our pastors make stories sound bigger than they were. And so we went, how much of this is true? And he met the people and he heard it truly. He heard the gospel and he gave his life. If you're an unbeliever who belongs to a Christian family, or maybe you're a non-Christian family, but your brother got saved, or, or somebody in your family is a Christian, and they're here, and they invite you in. This is because we desire your eternal good. Every single human has been made by the one true God. Let's remember what Jethro learned. There is only one true ultimate God. He created the whole world, spiritual realm and physical realm, he created it to last for a time, and then he will recreate it in glory. But at the beginning of creation, angels fell. The devil rebelled. He tempted Adam and Eve, and he brought sin into this world, and it infected and affected everything. As a human being who is a descendant of Adam, the first sinner, you are therefore born sinful, born corrupted, and every decision you make confirms that. You delight in evil. You despise God's laws. And you may think, no, I'm quite spiritual. I'm impartial about this God. No, the Bible tells us that if you think that about God, you don't know the true God. If you met him, you would despise him. You don't like what he emphasizes. You don't like his laws. You don't like his standards. But deep down, you know that he is real, that he is true, and that he is the only God. And that God... Though all of us were in sin, and he could have sent all of us to eternal hell without anybody crying foul at his justice, though he could have, his mercy and in his love and in his grace, he came into our world in the person of Jesus, born as a perfect baby, lived as a perfect human, truly God, yet in true human flesh. He represented us and then went and made the perfect sacrifice on the altar of God to pay for our sin to satisfy God's wrath and to redeem our souls from the death that we deserved. And then he was raised from the dead to confirm his power. He was seated in the seat of God, the throne of God in heaven, from where he is going to return one day and judge everybody. 
What differentiated the Amalekites and Jethro was not their past. They were both horrible sinners. So was Moses. So was every Israelite. So is every Christian that's ever been born. The ultimate question is not, are you a sinner or a good person? The question is, are you a sinner who will run from God and be judged? Or are you a sinner who will run to God, sure of his mercy, and be saved? That's the question. Will you today flee to Jesus? Will you today come to God's mediator and say, please pray for me, Jesus. Please save me, Jesus. Please redeem me, Jesus. Will you do that? If you do, this very moment, you are saved for eternity, your soul is changed, and you're brought into the people of God forever. Family, are you praying for your loved ones? Are you bringing them in? Are you interceding for them with a hand on the throne of God? The Lord is our banner. Let us pray and cry out day and night till we see all of our loved ones, all of our enemies converted to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, you are a man of war. You are a warrior against all of your enemies. And we know that one day you will finally put them all down. There will no longer be a fight. There will no longer be spiritual warfare. There will no longer be enemies of God except for those who are down on their knees and receiving punishment behind the locked gates of hell. Father God, we, we thank you with an unending thanks that will never be, never be strong enough. We will never be able to give you enough thanks, but we thank you that we have been spared. We have been brought to dine with you around the communion table. We have been brought to be washed from our sins and we can say with confidence, I'm a sinner, but I'm a saved sinner. I belong to the group of saved sinners called the church. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a child of God. I'm a saved sinner. Father God, we thank you for that. But we, we think of the lost. We think of our neighbors and our loved ones and our cousins and our friends, we think of those who do not know you. And we ask that you would forgive us for our prayerlessness, that you would forgive us for our lack of faith and forgiving up in hope. We pray that you would empower us with faith, that we might put our hand upon the throne of God, for you are our banner. And as long as you, you reign, Lord God, as long as you exist, as long as you live, there is hope that sinners will be saved. The, the arm of the Lord is not shortened. You can save, Lord God. Would you fill us with that faith? But we ask more immediately that those who do not know you would not be like Amalek, uh, uh, Amalek and, and turn away in rebellion or, or oppose your purposes, but that those who do not, not, do not know you today would have melted hearts as they hear of your mercy and your love towards your undeserving people and that they would trust in Jesus Christ. They would rely on his sacrifice in their place and that they would be sure, no matter how sinful they are, there is more mercy and grace in Jesus. Father God, we pray that you be in our midst converting souls today. Build us up. We thank you, Lord God. And we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. And everybody said... This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.